Welcome once again to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Alex. I'm Vera. I'm Sylvia. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. Before we jump into this episode's discussion, uh, we want to remind you, you can always reach out to us with questions or comments about the podcast at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at hpbcpodcast. Uh, we would love to have uh, you follow us, uh, keep up to date, and send in your comments or questions. We may even feature those on an upcoming broadcast. Uh, this week, we are on Chapter 3 of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Burrow. And to get us kicked off, I'm going to throw it over to Crystal. Okay, so, <clears throat> um, one thing I looked up today, and I guess it seems obvious after, I don't know, 21-ish years of reading all of this, but I looked up, do weasels burrow? <laughs> and they do. <laughs> so they burrow. Um, and then I looked up what burrow means. Did anybody else do that? Nope. Okay, yep. well, you did? Yeah, I did. Of course you did. We're the same. Um, so burrow, and according to the dictionary, means a place of retreat, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting. It, or it actually means a shelter or a place of retreat or refuge. And I thought that that was really sweet coming off of the last chapter that we just read where he's escaping this, you know, horrible treatment that we've been talking about into this place of retreat. But I also, <clears throat> when I was reading about weasels, um, I feel like the name is a little misleading because weasels actually are violent sort of little creatures. They kill their prey and then burrow in their their prey's dens. So hmm. I thought, how interesting that, hmm. I mean, it seems appropriately named, but then when you think about, like, weasels themselves, like, when we use the word weasel, like, and of course I'm referring to the Weasleys here, but when we talk about, when we use the word weasel, we are usually accusing someone like, oh, you weasel, or it means, like, sneaky or cunning, hmm. which is interesting. Because cunning is one of the words used to describe Slytherin. And the Weasleys are all Gryffindors. So. Yeah, and I think, and we'll get to this more later, but the your our encounters with Arthur, the patriarch of the Weasley family, doesn't come across as a cunning, eat your victim and sleep in his house right. type. Yeah. Well, and I, at, at first glance. At first glance. I mean, at I, first glance, at least. When I thought of a, a burrow, because yeah, I was going to ask this question too. Was you know why did they name their their dwelling, their house, the burrow? I mean, mm -hmm. like, why, why why would they do that? Especially you know? if it's not going to be underground. underground. It's not underground. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's typically, uh, I think, used by rabbits. You yeah. know, when you're when you're talking about it. And then I thought, well, you know, I, what connected in my mind were. You know, like there's a lot of children. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, and you know, rabbits are <laughs> known for their, mm -hmm. you know, fertility, and so they're just, uh, you know, how uh, funny. Yeah, that, that's what it made me think yeah. of. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you. As we right. were just going on that discussion, my thought wasn't weasels; it was rabbits. Yes, which have the connotation of innocence mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, even being open to predators, being vulnerable. Good which listeners is is the Good listeners. Okay. Huge ears. Okay. Well, <laughs> and do with that what you will. Yeah. <laughs> but they've got this connotation of vulnerability and innocence, um, unlike weasels, but also there's the, the 
children and the expansive families. And I do think, though, the borough as a place of retreat, and I wouldn't put it past J.K. Rowling for bringing up both connotations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it fits with the insult <laughs> as well as with maybe the the spirit of their family, which is um, it's a large family that is innocent and good, uh, but at the same time vulnerable because of their goodness to the darkness that mm-hmm. will eventually try to, to take over. I have a thought on that as well that just came to me, which is if burrowing is connotated with underground um, and with retreat later, that's what they become for Muggleborns. They're very much this almost like underground railroad, maybe that's stretching it, but they're this protected place yeah. that mm. the, the vulnerable and the persecuted can go. They even um, have the uh, Order of Ooh. the Phoenix, I mean, a, a temporary base yeah. that is at the borough yeah. even as well. So, Well, and Harry is a vulnerable person who is yeah. retreating into their borough. So even in that regard, I think that's a good point to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think definitely the connotation of safe haven mm-hmm. is, is intentional, um, but easy to miss. Uh, in, you know, years and years and years of rereading this chapter... I don't know that I've ever asked myself why it's called the burrow. Yeah, yeah. same. It's, it's never even crossed my mind. Um, but I absolutely think that that, uh, that sense of safety fits with not only the dynamics in the plot in this book, but throughout with the way that this home eventually is utilized. But isn't it weird that their last name is Weasley? Yeah. And even Mr. Weasley's Patronus is a weasel. And generally, your Patronus is sort of a reflection of your innermost character almost. Or at least that's how it seems to me. And so I, I looked and looked and looked online today. Are there good qualities associated with weasels? And I couldn't find any. So wizardingworld.com says... Weasels traditionally tend to be pretty sly and deceitful, but we wager this wasn't supposed to suggest the Weasley family are in any way devious, but rather that the weasel's bad reputation is undeserved. But is it? Because I didn't find any good characteristics on weasels today while searching National Geographic and all sorts of places. So, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. What are the other Weasley Patronuses? The only one that I know of for sure is Ron's, which is a dog, a retriever, or a terrier, yeah, rather. A terrier. Which is amazing, by the way, because he's a loyal best friend, just yeah. like all dogs. And when I think of that, it literally jokes me up. <laughs> <laughs> but a terrier, that's very interesting, right? Because terriers are bred normally Dude. as rodent hunters. Yeah, that was going to say. What? Yeah, yeah. so like you, you, you use that a terrier. complex. Why does you she You use a terrier, a terrier yeah. to, like, safely, usually, kill Rats, as, yeah, as weasels, like a rat or other something. things that would be pests on a farm. Wow. Um, he, his Patronus developed after the Scabbers incident. True. <laughs> 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 Man, we're just where did we just go? Wow, we went down the rabbit burrow. Yeah, way wow. out in left field. Right okay, now. I think that's really a cool thought. That perhaps he is a terrier because, in part. His best friend was a rabbit that turned out oh, to no. instead a be a horrific a rat. A rat, sorry. A rat, <laughs> rat, sorry. A, yes, you're right. Not a rabbit. Um, and then turned out to be a creepy old guy who murdered a bunch of people. Um, Which he is in this chapter, I guess. So there's a yeah, yeah, sure. in yeah. there. Yeah. Wow. 
But it, yeah, we don't start in the borough. Right? No. Yeah, I'd like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we need to back up, but yeah, the, just the chapter being called The Burrow was really yeah, intriguing, right. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time we get to see this great place. This is basically like a second home for yeah. Harry, other than, you know, Hogwarts itself. Um, but, I, yeah, I would definitely like to back up to where it starts. You know, I think in the last episode we talked a lot about the situation Harry was in, where it was basically like he was in prison, Um you know, being fed small meals, you know, through a locked door, bars on the window. And in the beginning of this chapter, we actually get a prison break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of how it's portrayed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I do love that. I mean, it's definitely, I, I felt like reading this, it's one of those stories that's going to be, you know, we all have those in our lives where it's like, I'll remember, you know, this story and we love telling it. And, you know, like, this is definitely going to be one of their stories mm-hmm. that they reminisce about later on in life. Of course, they end up with a whole lot of those stories. Yes, they do. They really do. Like seven books worth, really. Like, we destroyed Voldemort together. That's... That's a big one. (laughs) Do you think... But do you remember that time I had the car? (laughs) (laughs) That was cool. Sorry, Alex, what were you saying? Well, do you think... I guess what I, this sounds ridiculous and I'm saying it out loud, but it was like, I was thinking to myself, this is promising. Uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, the stories give us these little snippets that are a cohesive narrative, you know, all the way throughout. And if you could actually like get into the character's life, how many, how much more do you think there is? Like, are we getting, are we getting all of the highlights or are we just getting the things that work so narratively well? But, like, do you think J.K. had thought through, like, all sorts of other things that had happened throughout the year in every book, but was like, you know, I can't fit all this in here. It's going to get too long or it's going to not, it's not really serving the purpose that I'm going for, even though, you know, I imagine this or that incident, you know, that this funny thing happened or this, this little interaction. But, you know, that, that character really wasn't that essential to have, you know, mm-hmm. and then eventually we're left with what we have, but there was, I mean... What was left on the cutting room floor, you know? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of think that she is that type of writer because we get all these little snippets that are just kind of glossed over. We're like, oh, I want to hear all about that. Mm-hmm. And you know that she knows the whole story. And that's kind of what Pottermore is now, mm-hmm. I guess, is that she keeps thinking of things that yeah. fit within the world but didn't go into the narrative. You know, I, when I was actually reading through this, uh, getting back, I guess, to the uh, prison break here, um, I was thinking, you know, I know it, they're just really getting into it. They didn't have time to really plan a whole lot. But, you know, when they're getting ready to rip the bars off the windows, I'm thinking, like, why doesn't Harry have, like, some stuff, like, ready to go in case it makes a really loud noise and they need to, like, jet really quickly and he's got a lot of gold in the bank so maybe he can buy new equipment and supplies because it's all locked down stairs i guess under the cut well they had to break the bars off to get that well I, they did they did Harry yeah he didn't know how to pick the lock well no i'm saying before when they ripped the bars off i mean i'm thinking that it's going to make a loud noise apparently it doesn't yeah and uh, Hedwig yeah. does yeah, but the Hedwig, bars don't. yeah the bars don't wake the dursleys that is surprising i'm just saying though like 
Harry says, my stuff is locked in the cupboard under the stairs. And Fred and George say, no problem, we can get it. That which makes me think Harry was unable to retrieve it or he already would have. Mm. But to Matt's yeah. point, he doesn't make that statement clear before they rip the they, bars off. Rip yeah. the bars off. Uh, and, that's then, true. Yeah. and then, and then it's, it's like, like okay. Right. Guys, right. I'm not actually prepared to go. Yeah, right. true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they rip off point. the bars and Ron's like, get in. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then yeah, he's like, I don't have any of my I, stuff. Yeah. That's true. I'm That's not ready. And also, like, Fred and George just have no problem getting out of this locked door that Harry's been trapped in, apparently. Which is interesting, I think. And they, they're able to well, unlock they, it with the hairpin. They picked the lock, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I love but that. But it's like, Harry has, we know in the past, like, in the Sorcerer's Stone, like, Harry repaired an old alarm clock. Like, he's kind of... He's got some ingenuity. Hmm. So, like, how can he not pick this lock? It he seems... He didn't have any hairpins. I guess. He's just, he's just not... <laughs> his hair is unruly and his he leaves it that way. His morale was just low He's he just not mischievous It probably enough. was his morale. You're right. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. He was so depressed. I, I do also think that that is a very realistic depiction, though, of the way a young boy would be responding in this. Like, just... Super excited! His friends are here. The car is coming. He wants to see them rip those hand those bars off his window. He's not thinking about it. I want to like, oh, I gotta get packed. I gotta, I gotta go. You know, I, yeah. I don't know. I think that makes that is a perfectly accurate depiction of how most people are gonna respond to that. Well, I'm I mean, thinking, he even forgets Hedwig. I, I mean, I'm right. willing. He gets Hedwig. I'm like, willing to forgive Harry because yeah, they just kind of showed up at his window. Yeah. But you know, I mean, all the Weasleys there. They flew the car down yeah. there. They had the. They should have had a game They had the, the ropes, you know, and, and I mean, ready, the hooks ready to yank it off. I mean, you didn't think, you know, like, oh, we probably are going to need to be quiet during this time. And I mean, like, yeah. well, let's make but sure we did, have all of this stuff bring, like, ready to go. Yeah, exactly. They did. Okay. They knew what was getting ready to happen. How old are Fred and George right now? They're only, I think, at max two years older than Ron and Harry. Right. So. Yeah, I like think that's right. I 14, think 14 maybe. Maybe they just had a birthday and turned 15. Yeah. Maybe. Um, in which case, they're two 15-year-old boys thinking about how to rescue a friend. They think they need grappling hooks yeah. and a flying car. Yeah. We're ready to go. Maybe they have... I mean, oh, maybe it's also just some, they like... They just have rope. It's not, it's not a hook like in the movie. Okay. No. All right. So maybe they got, they got rope and then, you know, maybe Ron was like, oh, but what if we're hungry? And they, like, grab a bunch of, you know... Wizarding Snickers or something, and then like <laughs> Wizarding Snickers. <laughs> then they're they're flying out, you know. They're so fifteen year old boys. They're not thinking about well, we got school be quiet. books, yeah, and school books, yeah. and pets we need to take care of yeah. that might be harmed by Muggles. Well, also, if you come from a family like the Weasleys, where it's loving, wouldn't it be hard to imagine the situation that Harry is actually in? So maybe they just happen to have some rope, but they likely didn't realize what kind of scenario they were about to come into. Mm. So there's that too. Yeah. I'm just thinking like if I hadn't heard from a friend and then I went to find out what happened to this friend and there were locks and prison bars, bars on the window, my reaction, I don't I don't even know. I, I would not have anticipated the fact that I hadn't heard from them was because they were locked in their room being fed through a cat flap. Because that's the stuff of horror movies. Yeah. yeah. And DSS hearings. Yes. Well, I mean, I guess we'll move on with the scene. I mean, Harry's getting ready. They push the trunk out. They get everything up, uh, all of his school supplies and 
they just get the trunk into or get the trunk into the trunk <laughs> of the car. <laughs> the boot. The boot. Yeah. <laughs> the boot. And then uh, Hedwig doesn't want to be left behind, of course, and that's what, what? wakes Uncle Vernon up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- tough to believe. Yeah, I know. Although they, you know, they have had that hate relationship with that owl, and they won't let it out. And I guess it's just touched the last nerve. Yep. I mean, maybe it's just the screech. Mm-hmm. But really, how did they hear this owl, and yet they don't hear the bars being ripped off the window? Uh, yeah. I also, I think we need to back up to the fact that there's a flying car, like, right outside yeah, this window, sure. that it flew down into this neighborhood. Yeah. Like, seriously, are there not people who work the night shift in the UK? I mean, this is clearly breaking the... The law. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, Walls we, of physics. We, we, we have an owl in that lives in the trees back behind our house. And when he gets going at night, it immediately wakes me up. Which I was going to say, so the car, obviously, outside the house would wake him up. But then I realized, in Vernon's defense, it is an owl that's waking me up. So, mm-hmm. and I, I really... I do dislike the owl. Will you imitate the owl for I will our listeners, not, please? I will not do that <laughs> right now. But um, it's a very distinctive call. Sounds like call. you're holding back on us. It's buddy. a very distinctive call that he has. I feel like our listeners want to hear that. I, I know the rest of your HPBC do. I don't think that they, they do want to hear that. Um, but yeah, but, I, I, I think we should talk. Let's talk about the, the Flying Ford Anglia. Very important. So, so these kids flew <laughs> an enchanted car at night into a muggle neighborhood. You don't think they had the lights on or anything, do you? I mean, in I the think movie, definitely. In the movie, yeah, I know, the lights I know. on. And so that would be really strange. I mean, that's obviously, so, oh, it's a, it's a UFO, you know, flying through the air. And they don't use the invisibility booster, which we'll yeah. talk about later. yeah. And so I guess they're just like hoping for cover of night, but they're definitely using the lights. Yeah, cover of night only works when you're flying, you know, further up. Ron, <laughs> Ron says though it was cloudy. Oh, gosh. when when Mrs. Weasley gets really upset. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. So we get everybody into the car. Uncle Vernon gets a hold of Harry just for a moment, and they do a tug of war. With Harry's body. I gotta say, I liked the movie uh, version better where actually Uncle Vernon gets pulled through the window. Oh, and, oh, and, and out. He, and out and then tumbles down into the, the shrubbery yeah. underneath. Right. Um, but, I kind of liked that a little bit better. But this was still good, I guess. <laughs> the original is pretty good. Yeah. So, but at this point, Aunt Petunia and Dudley are also awake, and they're all staring out the window as they fly away in their enchanted car, and Harry yells, see you next summer. I wonder what the significance was, if any, by the choice of the Ford Anglia. I mean, it's not a common car, you know, in general. I mean, I think my understanding is that it was only made, like, in certain UK, like, it was made in the UK, and I think there was also an Australian version, um, and it went out of production like in the late 60s. You know, this was like not a model that was made. For lo- so, this is an old car, mm-hmm. like what was depicted in, I mean, 
I think the one that was depicted in the movie is very obviously old, but it's not even like they have an updated version. Like, you know, there are old Corvettes, but there's new Corvettes. Like, there are there are no new Anglias. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if there was anything to that other than just my own thought is, like, what a way to hype up the Britishness. Yeah. yeah. Anglia, by just, right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a Ford, but it's an Anglia Ford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's English. <laughs> I don't I mean, maybe there's some significance, you know, to the writer. I, I don't know. Maybe there's that particular car you know, was written in there for a particular purpose. Maybe. Or maybe her parents slash grandparents had this car and it was just something she has a fond memory of. We yeah. should find that out. Or but also knows. the the weirdness of it. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of it from the perspective of an American child, mm. you know, reading it. Um, Ford Anglet, never heard of that. But you you grow to learn about Mr. Weasley until so you piece it. You piece together... Um, yeah, that's the kind of car he'd have. <laughs> you know, he he would want one of those and then tinker away at it and make it fly. Yeah. And so in some ways, the oddity of it fits his character. Mm-hmm. And there may be other explanations, but that one is sufficient for the internal universe of the story. Yeah. Well, he says, you know, I guess I love the see you next summer line, you know, I mean, and they all roar with laughter because, you know, that's just the ordeal that he's been going through, you know, and it's kind of just like, peace, see you later. Um, I, I really do love that. But then we get into Harry talks about what's been going on with him. And I mean, I've kind of found it a little funny that, you know, they're saying, well, who do you think? sent Dobby, and, I mean, they pretty much nail it right, right on the head. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Draco. Yeah, but, they've got well, the intention wrong, but they're yeah. like, this is the Malfoy's Yeah, elf, definitely sure. the Malfoy's, and yeah, they're pretty much hitting it right on the Why head. Why would almost. anyone else have cause yeah. to do this? Yeah. It's so. sort of a diversion, though, mm-hmm. because you're assuming, as a reader, the first idea is never the right idea. Yeah. Yep. But oftentimes, you know, in even in mystery stories, it it ends up twisting around that your first hunch actually was right, but mm-hmm. the the writers convinced you not to trust your hunches. Right. right. And then which is a you, very smart thing for you them to feel do. doubly fooled mm-hmm. by the story, which is sort of what goes on, goes on here. Yeah. yeah. I, I found it strange that Harry says, when, when they're talking about it was perhaps Malfoy who sent Dobby, he says, Malfoy made Dudley Dursley look like a kind, thoughtful, and sensitive boy. And I just find that line hard to believe because, I mean, at this point, the worst that Malfoy has really done to Harry is, like, lure him out of bed and try to get him into detention with the dragon in Sorcerer's Stone. Mm-hmm. I, maybe there's something worse that I don't know of, that like, that I'm not thinking of, but Dudley has been torturing Harry for 12 years and then some pretty bad, like, allowing abuse, basically, to happen and, like, laughing at it and gawking at it like a TV show. So, like, how bad does... Um, maybe it's just this whole thing where, it, like, you know, the the worst thing is, like, what's right in front of you, what you're currently having to deal with. But this is just unbelievable to me. Like, that Malfoy is so bad he makes Dudley look kind. Because that's not... Uh, later, yes, right. I completely that, agree. Yes, that yes. eventually becomes yes. the case. But, but at, this point, at this point, it is not true. Hmm. 
But then when I was thinking about that, this is a completely crazy theory. And feel free to shut me down. And I even when I was thinking about it said, I'm not going to say it because it's so ridiculous. Tell us. But I don't know if you've all, if you all have seen some of the things that J.K. Rowling has released about Malfoy. But he's almost a redeemable character in a lot of ways. And, like, she kind of says, like, there are, she has released things that say, for example, Malfoy always thought Fred Weasley was really funny. So she, att- he attended um, Fred's funeral and, like, sat in the back. And, like, there are these little things that make you think, maybe Malfoy was, like, okay after all. And in the end, he realized, like, Harry was on the right side all along. And he, like, begrudgingly, you know, he couldn't kill Dumbledore, for example. And so I'm just wondering, like, what are the odds that maybe Malfoy did send Dobby? Hmm. And, like, maybe Lucius is the one who said, like, Dobby, you cannot reveal this plot to anyone. But maybe Malfoy was like, why don't you go and warn Harry? And let him know there's something afoot. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I don't know I if don't not think. murdering somebody is a good standard for whether or not somebody is, has a redeemable character. I just, I find it very hard to think that Malfoy would have Harry's best interest at heart. Yes. Or that he would do anything that would lose his father's approval. Now, even secretly. Or, I, I or would he... I would believe that perhaps overhearing some not so inconspicuous mutterings by Dobby about, you know, the brave and wonderful Harry Potter and also knowing that his father had prohibited Dobby from actually saying anything important that Malfoy might say, "Go on ahead, Dobby. You know, tell tell Go go to Harry Potter. You can't actually say anything mm. essential, but freak him the heck out, and maybe he'll stay away yeah. from school. And then I don't have to get do to with be Harry Potter. I get to be quit a shiro. And you'll have right. to iron your ears. And then you'll have to iron your ears. Exactly. Right. <laughs> that and like, is more fitting. And that, that to me makes more sense that he would use this to his advantage to manipulate Dobby's mm-hmm. feelings mm-hmm. of desire to help Harry all that and then being like I get to watch you hurt yourself but we don't ever get any inkling that Malfoy had any idea what was going on right that 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 was my thing is that there's there's no sense um, that he had any idea how serious the riddle diary actually was yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it's 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 a big deal it's a big deal to open up the chamber of secrets in itself but I mean, what's going on here is a couple levels deeper than even that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because don't they uh, go with Polyjuice Potion to try to flesh it out for mm-hmm. Malfoy? They yeah. do. Mm-hmm. He yeah. doesn't know. But and I think he even says he hopes for Hermione is the one that gets killed. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, in right. book seven, <laughs> that could have been believable. Like, but there's so much uh-huh. ambiguity by book seven yeah. with uh, when they go to Malfoy Manor. But, dear listeners, we will, we will get yeah. there. Down the road. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think I just, I want to love Malfoy like the same way I love You're, Snape well, because Snape no. is so redeemable in the end. But Malfoy, I don't know. I mean, cursed Child changes that, right? Right, and and I've even referenced Cursed Child in regards to how she does kind of try to redeem Malfoy mm-hmm. by saying mm-hmm. like, you know, Malfoy was always jealous of Harry, Ron, and Hermione's relationship, and how, you know, I mean, Draco feels a ton of pressure from Lucius, and then his friends are not really his friends, it's a consumeristic kind of relationship. Well, they're Slytherins. They're cunning. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, Hey, now. I know, sorry. (laughs) Um, 
yeah, anyway, I think I just want it to be true of Malfoy. And, and like I said, I wasn't even going to bring it up because I talked myself out of it with all these same arguments you all are making. But I just want it to be true because I do think in the end Malfoy loses his nerve maybe or he realizes that Voldemort is not the right side after all. Yes, yeah. but I think it's a, it is a journey for to him get to get there. Yeah. And in part it's because his family loses honor mm. in yeah. Voldemort's eyes and yeah. you've got to Which, think that if they didn't lose that honor would he still be right, right there in the thick yeah. of it. right Probably. although that is something that you know who knows when we'll, we'll finally get there but in later books um nothing is safe in voldemort's presence um yeah and those who want his approval most are most vulnerable to his fickle affections mm-hmm. He, like poor Bellatrix. Bellatrix. Um, but but everybody is always saying, the Dark Lord loves me the most. Yeah. You know, And it's almost like they're trying to convince themselves that they actually are safe with him. But the reality is nobody's safe with him yeah. because he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And Malfoy sees that play out with his family. And the thing that he wants most um, from his father, you know, approval, love affection his father loses from Voldemort and I think there there really is a sense of reevaluating that goes on but even that isn't secured until I, I just think of that scene in the movie when he finally walks off mm-hmm. um, with Narcissa yeah. And they just leave. And the, yeah. that's still they the, turn their backs. That's the very end. Yeah. I mean, really. It's the very end and, and that's it's only then that we see, okay, they've they've said there is something in the world worth uh, more mm-hmm. than what Voldemort's after. Mm-hmm. That gives me goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we do find out, thankfully, I mean, with the flying car, I mean, well, how did you get this flying car? Um, and we find out that uh, the or author Weasley uh, works for the Department of the Misuse of muggle artifacts um and i know i mean we're going to get to that part so i mean maybe i shouldn't bring it up i mean but uh he he loves to to delve into the muggle world and Mm -hmm. take apart things and i know in later chapters and in other books he talks to harry about you know i mean just really commonplace items like what is this and he's fascinated by them um I mean, I don't know. Does anyone want to speak to that? I I just had a thought. I'm sorry. It's back to what Alex was saying about the Ford Anglia. Perhaps the reason they chose an Anglia is because it's sort of an artifact, and it is a blatant misuse of muggle artifacts. Oh. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, obviously he's... So the irony of the fact that he is in charge of this and yet is misusing it. Yeah, I I think Arthur's a really very ironic character. Because that's his whole deal. Mm-hmm. He, he works for the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office, and his hobby is... Misusing. Misusing Muggle, Muggle Artifacts, yeah. And so, and you know, never never maliciously. He's not putting these things back out into the world. Mm-hmm. Like, they're always having to go and rescue Muggles and wipe memories and stuff because of these dangerous magical objects. But he thinks Muggle stuff is so fun. Yeah. yeah. And he just wants to take it apart and put spells on it and put it back together but, again. But he even says, he picks up on, on the irony of it. He makes it clear when he says, yes, it could fly. But if you 
didn't, didn't intend for it to right. It wouldn't be against the law. And Molly says, There's a loophole You the wrote law. the law right. for that loophole so yes. that you could keep on doing this. Like, don't act like this is just, oh, there just happens to be a loophole. You made the loophole. Right. I yeah. think this kind of, uh, one might, I guess perhaps you might call it the hypocritical bureaucrat mm-hmm. character. Lighthearted corruption. Is, is like, <laughs> is something that's incredibly popular in, in modern imag- imagination. I keep seeing it other places. I think the quintessential example of this today is Ron Swanson from mm, yeah, Parks, 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 Parks and Rec, Rec because he is supposed to be this small government or quasi-anarchical libertarian. You know, he says multiple times, you know, I'd like to privatize the whole government. You know, parks should be like you walk in the park, you put in a quarter, you ride on the swing, you put in a quarter, you know, mm-hmm. you, you see a, a little duck. birdie, you, you look at a duck, you put in a quarter. Um, he takes it to a, a, a hilarious extreme, but it is it is absolutely charming. I mean, mm-hmm. he's like fully committed to working for the government and te- seems to do a very good job at his job. And yet also like mm-hmm. knows all the loopholes, knows all the limits yeah. and yeah. uses them accordingly. Um, yeah, I think Fred, Fred says it best. If he raided our house, he'd have to put himself under arrest. <laughs> That is exactly what would happen. Right. And like Ron, you know, if you, arguably, if you're really consistent, you wouldn't work for the government. Mm -hmm. But. Yeah. But back to your point, Matt, like, how does he not know what the functions of these things are with this being his everyday job? Like a rubber duck, like. It's not complicated. <laughs> you put in the bath and it floats. Well, I think hold that's on. the funny thing is that he just doesn't get why an object would be would be so simple because everything in the magical world is like whimsical and yeah. or or you know it serves some kind of purpose and is more complex than what it seems. Yeah. And so many things in the Mongol world are just that simple. It squeaks. You put it in the bathtub. Yeah. That's all we do. You know, and so he just he thinks there's got to be some deeper meaning. Yeah, but to again, I gotta things. ask, how did he get this job? Because you know, there's a whole lot of wizards out there, witches and wizards, that one parent is a muggle, one parent is a wizard. You know, and so they were obviously brought up with muggle artifacts and brought up maybe well, in the muggle world. Well, he he is. Yeah. And I'm asking, saying, how, why, why how did he get this a, job and not somebody else not that actually knows what muggle well, items are? Ron says he works in the most boring department, so perhaps it's just a job I guess that it's nobody, yeah, nobody yeah, really likes because he really likes it. Like, yeah, he's fascinated. I mean, he is fascinated. Well, yeah, he's passionate about it, and he's a compassionate person who like cares about people, yeah. regardless yeah. of whether they're wizards or not. Yeah. And one thing I think when Hermione. Maybe it's when they're taking OWLs or looking at future career prospects. It's in Order of the Phoenix when they're meeting with their heads of houses to discuss future career options. And Hermione is talking about, like, to liaise with muggles, all you really need is a good sense of fun and, like, an OWL in charms or something. It's very simple what you need. And so I think here we're getting this idea that Arthur is endearingly... How do I say unintelligent? In- <laughs> in- in- incompetent. Simple. Incompetent. Simple. Simple, yes. I think that's yeah. he's sort a, of what we're He's I think a simple man. Simple. I don't think the Weasleys are simple. Yeah, well, not all I'm, of them. I'm, I'm saying the, the parents. Molly and Arthur 
are simple but folk. Well, you got to say that they're not ambitious in the way that you know, right. like Lucius Malfoy is. I mean, it, it's uh, maybe they're making a comparison between the two. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I think, especially mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because simple. It can have multiple senses. But when you get to the tail end of book seven and Molly Weasley lets loose Mm -hmm. with a wand, Mm -hmm. it, you know, Rowling says Harry sort of steps back and just watches. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Weasley is a powerful... Uh Competent witch. Yes, a competent witch. Yeah. I mean, she kills Bellatrix. Yeah. Yeah. And makes short work of it. Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are simple in the sense that they have different priorities. Yes. They are not mm. ambitious in the sense that gold is everything. And um, impressing people uh, in line with their pure blood status is everything to them. It's not. They have other priorities. But both of them, in, in a certain sense, are deeply competent, mm-hmm. even though... On the outside, especially at first glance, Miss Weasley is managing a rather impoverished household mm-hmm. by pure blood standards. And Mr. Weasley is scraping by in a job that nobody else wants. Yeah. But when the Order of the Phoenix needs somebody, it's Mr. Weasley who's guarding the yeah. the what? prophecy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he's there. Mm. Um, and... He is increasingly depicted as a man of integrity mm-hmm. and character. He is dependable. Um, I, I think just looking over the course of the whole kin, he is a good, solid yeah. person. Absolutely. Um, but it there is this sort of whimsical, incompetent, professor almost like this sort of curious person who's out of his league uh in in certain ways and it is endearing yeah well can we get to uh the first time harry sees the burrow Mm-hmm. Have we arrived at that point? Have, have we arrived? Okay. Well, we're, think, yeah. we're yeah, we're pretty much there. I mean, well, the the sun starts coming up yeah. through the trees. So I mean, it's a new uh, bright dawn in Harry's future, I guess you could say. Um, with the sun coming up and uh, wow, yeah, thank you. I uh, planned on that. Um, you, uh, I would love, I'd love to read just the uh, the, the first time. Yeah, the, yeah, the first time. It. Okay. So I mean, Harry looked out for the first time at Ron's house. It looked as though it had once been a large stone pig pen, but extra rooms had been added here and there until it was several stories high, and so crooked it looked as though it were held up by magic, which, Harry reminded himself, it probably was. Four or five chimneys were perched on top of the red roof. A lopsided sign stuck in the ground near the entrance read the burrow. Around the front door lay a jumble of rubber boots and a very rusty cauldron. Several fat brown chickens were pecking their way around the yard. So that's the first thing that Harry sees of what will be his home away from home, Yeah, I guess you could say. Okay, one question I had about this uh-huh. and other, I guess, wizarding architecture. Since we know later on that essentially wizards are able to produce spaces that are physically larger on the inside than the mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. similar to 
Whovian Time Lord technology. Um, <laughs> then we have to believe that the way they constructed this house to look is actually the way they want it to appear to others, right? Because they could have just, they could have had a tent yeah. in the ground. You could walk into it and it would be as large a house mm -hmm. with whatever way you would possibly want it designed to be. So this isn't an image that is forced upon them by, mm. you know, economic necessity or the, the, you know, the materials at hand or whatever else it might be. They could make it appear however they want. We think. But see, we, we, think. we think, I think, but it's still, I mean, the way it sounds, it's, there's extra rooms here and there. It's kind of like it's a little hazardly hodgepodge put together. Yeah, right, hodgepodge. Right. It, it almost seems like, okay, well, we just had another son, so we've got to add on this room. We just had another son. We've got to add on this room. <laughs> we just had another son. we got to add on this <laughs> that's room. That's exactly you know? what happened to and them. And so, like, that's kind of the way they that... It's it's made to seem is it's really haphazard, just added on. And of course, um, when you look at it, it's not structurally sound. I mean, it's it's crooked, uh, and probably held together by magic. So it. So so my my submission is that things like the magical tents that we see later in like book four, I feel like that kind of magic is temporary. I'm not sure about that, but that's my that's my feeling is that certain magic we've heard of certain magic where the spell wears off um and something that you live in on a day-to-day -day basis for the entirety of your children's lives needs to probably have a more structural basis than just magic is my thought it, it does seem to be like kind of held together with magic which that seems like the kind of thing they're like okay we need to renew the prop up spells like cleaning out the gutters yeah you know, let's walk around the house and make sure that all our wards are good so nothing's going to fall off when the kids come home for Christmas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think the, the place itself has to be somewhat structurally sound. Another thought. When uh -huh. you're saying haphazard building, like uh -huh. you have another kid, you add a little bit more. Uh-huh. It made me think, perhaps this place is older than just this generation of Weasleys. Because... That's kind of the way that everybody used to build until perhaps maybe a hundred years ago. You know, you didn't, when you were settling the frontier or whatever it was, you didn't start out thinking, well, I think I might have five kids eventually, so I'll just build a five-bedroom house. Build pretty much what you could afford, which was usually the one, the one room, you know? And then you'd build a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Yeah. And that's how we see pretty much old houses being built everywhere in the entire world well, I, until when, you know. when I was actually looking up the borough, you know, I mean, I did a little bit of research myself and um, I think on Harry Potter wiki, uh, it says that there used to be an old Tudor house there and a pig pen. Um, but then they don't explain exactly what happened to the Tudor house. It disappeared. But I, I'm just curious uh, sorry, Alex, you're giving me a, a point so of Is there anything that you would like Wait to a minute. say about what this What do you this need this to moment? say? You're saying there was a Tudor house. There was a Tudor house. And then they built uh, out on top of it? They built on no, no, the no, no, pig no, no. pit. They on built the pig on pen. the pig pit. And that's one question that I actually wanted to bring up was the Tudor house is gone. Why didn't they build where the Tudor house was? Why did they decide to build on, it says, the this large stone, stone pig pit? Because it was stone. I mean, is, is that... Well, I, or I, that's a, that's a, that's that's on the table proud. right now. 
Why, why, is, why did they decide to be, build on the pig pen? Yeah, I don't know if there's a good explanation for why you'd build on the pig pen, but it sounds like then they were not the first occupants of this property. No, they weren't. In which case, maybe they were much more like the weasels, as described earlier. <gasps> they are occupying They killed the occupants of the Tudor house. used to be there before. <laughs> and I could understand why you wouldn't go back to the Tudor house if the oh, Tudor no. house contains the bodies. Is Auntie Muriel on which side? Because Auntie Muriel seems like a weasel. But is she on Molly's side? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. We're going to need to do some research on that. No, Muriel married into the family because she married Uncle Vilius, who Ron is named after. Okay. Okay. Mm. Goodness gracious, Chris. Sorry. I guess we didn't need to do research about it. Um, Yeah, so I I really love, I love the description of the borough. And I think just the feel that you get as you're reading it is just that these are people that do not care about appearances. They care about the comfort of their family, having enough room to get by, but not. it's not this huge, lavish area, even though they, they should have a lot of space. It's a big family. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it just it's so lived in and cozy and messy. And, and the opposite of... Where Harry has been. Yes. In every way. Which is like pristine and cold and clinical. Yeah. And yes. Mm. So I, I just, I love it. And there's chickens and there's rubber boots and it's, it's, it's crazy. Me- it's messy. Yeah. And in a way that I think Privet Drive and all the houses around it were almost cookie cutter and mm. the yards were neat and everything was in its place. And we see, I mean, oftentimes I think she, she does this with, the uh, the wizarding world where things are just messy messy in a, in a way that is very endearing I think and I think yeah. the borough is one of those places. Well, and Privet Drive is it's clean and it's nice and pristine, but it's a facade for what's mm-hmm. actually going on inside of the house, which is abuse and yes. neglect. And even I'm even referring to Dudley there because I mean you could make an argument and Dumbledore does make an argument that Mm -hmm. he's also being abused um, just by their fact that they're not they're not disciplining him he's turning into a menace to society because of his parents treatment of him Mm -hmm. so anyway I think Privet Drive is a facade where it's like it's neat and pristine and looks like somewhere you'd want to be but you don't want to be there whereas the borough is this cozy place there's a lot of love and while it may not look like the nicest place, they may even refer to it as a pigsty, which I think is probably part of the reason we're getting that. It's it's the foil of the Dursleys. That you This is where you want to be. This is where there's real love and real family and where life is actually happening. Yeah. Which It's a foil of the Dursleys, which they're described, especially Dudley, he's described as a pig. A pig, Multiple yeah. times, you know. So mm. it's, it's really interesting, yeah, that you have the burrow that's built on a actual pig pen or what was a pig pen, but it's something that, you know, is so endearing or it will be a place of refuge for mm-hmm. Harry. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but when I read that paragraph or I hear Matt, uh, read the paragraph beautifully once again, yeah, really, <laughs> I mean, top notch reading Thank you. Jim Dale, watch out the second edition of the audiobooks. You've got some competitions, right? <laughs> But you've got four or five chimneys, a lopsided sign, a jumble of rubber boots, a rusty cauldron, 
several fat brown chickens pecking around the yard. That conjures to mind very stereotypical images of rural poverty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, fir- the first thing that that made me think of was J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of uh, images of, particularly in America, white rural poverty. Um, which, I don't know if the images uh, are equivalent in British culture, but it seems like she's trying to conjure an image of a family that just can't quite keep up, and so there's garbage in the yard. An old rusty cauldron. I think of the old rusty pickup truck oh, yeah. mm-hmm. in the front yard. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go out into rural America, you know you you, you will see these sorts of things. Uh, and it seems like she's playing on that image, mm-hmm. and yet that is perfectly consistent with the ironic um, reversal that you guys are talking about because they are rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, even in book one we talked about, that Ron is always worried about their poverty, but they are a rich family in what matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also wonder if the image of the borough is uh, more of a literary device than an actual necessity within the world of the story. Because we know, based on some ancient wizard's law of something, that as long as you have material, you can duplicate it. Mm-hmm. So the, the raw materials of building are not an issue in terms of wealth. Then it would only be a matter of the skill of putting the material to um, some, some sort of architectural blueprint, um, which I, I would just assume that a competent wizard would be able to do. Um, and that's only if something like the tent magic that we talked about before is temporary and not permanent. Because mm-hmm. then why wouldn't all wizards just live in those tents? Or you take it with or you everywhere. Or, yeah. or bewitch their homes in, in similar, similar ways. Fa- yeah. But all, all of those things, when, when you accumulate them, um, they make me think that somehow, someway, the, the properties of magic make it such that um, the burrow did not have to look the way that it did. Mm-hmm. But even that, I'm not seeing as a plot hole because I wouldn't put it past Molly and Arthur to be intentionally living this way. Right. Right. Precisely because it has, and, and we see it proved over the course of the canon, it cultivates a character in their children. Yeah. It, like, the shape of their life together does something to their family that they believe is worthwhile uh, and worth the sacrifice of utter comfort in other ways. Yeah. Well, speaking of Molly Weasley, I mean, we meet her. I mean, can we... Or we, we see her, rather. I mean, here... Uh, and they think they've gotten away, or they're hoping to get away with it. The boys touch down <laughs> there at the borough, hoping to just park it away quietly, get in bed and act like they've been there the whole time. Uh, when Ron go- goes a nasty greenish color <laughs> and finds out that uh, Molly, uh, <laughs> or his mom, is coming right up behind them and that they're caught. 
And I, I actually thought, you know, it's it's meant to be a, a funny scene almost with, you know, all the boys who are much taller than their mother, but their mother is just, I think they use the, uh, the, the phrase is used, they cow, or yeah, they cowered as her rage broke over them, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, uh, you know, just really lays into them. I mean, and it's one of those things where it's funny because, you know, she's laying into them, but then every once in a while takes an aside and says, oh, but you're okay, Harry. Like, like how, how you doing? Like, I'm, I'm not, very pleased to I'm, see I'm, you, Harry. I'm, I'm happy, to see you. happy to see you. But this is another foil mm-hmm. because yeah. this is the right kind of rage to yes. be pouring on your children. This is a rage that is underscored by her love for them and the worry that they've been out all night. Yeah. Whereas Vernon... His rage, like, Harry has learned to, like, shrink away. It's real fear, fear for his safety. And so I mm. think that this, too, is meant to foil the Dursleys. Mm. Absolutely. And I'm, Matt took my notes. Yeah. The first thing we see at the borough is healthy discipline. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then if you notice, though, Harry yes. backs away. When she turns to him, he has, the, we, we've often yeah. said, Harry does not respond to the way someone who is facing neglect and abuse should respond. But in this scene, Harry does respond rightly. Mm-hmm. He's used to ducking out of the way mm-hmm. of, you know, frying yeah. pans. And when she turns to him after shouting at her sons, Harry backs away. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that hers is a different kind mm-hmm. of anger. And so I think it's interesting that we say he never responds rightly. But in this instant, when the rage coming at him is actually like mm-hmm. a loving sort of rage, he, he backs away. And that is the right kind of response that we would expect of someone being neglected yeah. and abused. That's a very good point. Yeah. But quickly, 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 we learn that Molly Weasley's rage, though, is the right kind of rage. Mm-hmm. The and I, I do think it's just so like the what you read, Matt, about her then like cowering. It's Matt always talks about like when he was younger, like when his mom would spank him, like it never hurt. It was just the, like, shame of the fact that his mom had to spank him. And I sort of get this imagery with, like, Molly Weasley. She doesn't seem the kind of woman that would, like, you know, she, she probably can't inflict much pain on her children. But it's, like, they have learned to respond to her threats that are, like, not real threats, you know. She, like, you know, woe be tied to you, Fred and George, <laughs> if there's a single no left in that, in that yes. garden. Like, what are you going to do? Nothing. You're going to withhold, like, four of the nine sausages you were going exactly. to give them for breakfast. So, oh. again, but, foiling yeah. the Dursleys for sure. Yes. I And the woman that ra- that had to raise Fred and George Weasley is a very strong <laughs> woman indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love, like, there are there are still consequences, too. It's not yeah. just her yelling to, to break off steam. You know, she she says... And they're like, wow, we're so, we're so beat, mom. We're going to go up and sleep. Uh, no, you are not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was your fault. You were out all night yeah. and you were going to go down the garden. Mm-hmm. So I love that. But yeah, you did bring up, I guess, the amount of food that yeah. was given to I Harry. Love and, that. Yeah, I, I mean, love it it, I mean, yes. you mentioned it's a foil. I mean, he probably got, uh, I mean, a week's worth of food that he would have gotten at the, Dur- at, at the, at the Dursleys. Dursleys. And he got it right there for breakfast, I you know, it. at the Weasleys. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, she's making a huge comparison between the two. And she softens when they say, they were starving him, Mom. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, nobody starves under Molly Weasley's watch. That's right. Yeah. Here, nine, I think he uses, I think he says nine sausages. Eight or nine sausages. Eight or nine sausages yep. onto his plate. Yes. Yeah. 
And, that, and that's then she's theme. buttering his bread for yes. him. Like, no one has ever mothered Harry. Yeah. Mm. I just, it's just such a beautiful picture. It like, really it almost is. makes me cry, Molly Weasley feeding him. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> but yeah. that, that recurs, that recurs, that theme of Harry yeah. not having a mother. Mm-hmm. Even though he has his mother's eyes. And his, his identity is so tied in with his mother. Mm-hmm. But that plays in so many of the books. Mm-hmm. Um, where... Molly is the surrogate mom. And there is a, a distinctive moment in one of the books mm-hmm. where they both recognize that this is exactly what's going yeah. on. Okay. And it's always been going on, but it's almost as if they acknowledge it without words. Yeah, It really is a beautiful thing. I, I think it's interesting, uh, again, to contrast the discipline. Uh, one, Molly's discipline is not at the cost of her love. Hmm. We've made that point, but it's not an, I am disciplining you and then withholding my affection Mm -hmm. in order to prove to you that you have done wrong. It's, I am disciplining you and I continue to love you. And in fact, that is why I am disciplining you. Mm -hmm. But also, she allows the consequences of her discipline to match the the disobedience, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's, you have stayed out all night and gone off to rescue your friend without permission. So now that you want to go to bed, no, you are going to do what I already expected you to do and you are going to afe- you are going to feel the effects of exhaustion mm-hmm. on your body because that is precisely what you have set yourself up for. Mm-hmm. There's no other threat. There's no other consequence. Mm-hmm. It's... No, all I'm going to do is be the vessel by which you feel the effects of your decisions and you don't try to shortcut them. Uh, And in both of those ways, even though, you know, the the writing is in italics and all caps and she comes across as really belligerent at first, our first description is, it was remarkable how much she looked like a saber-toothed tiger. That's the first, Mm -hmm. you know, introduction we get to her. But her actions her motherly instincts we could say are in a sense profoundly healthy and full of love and full of a a very distinct logic Mm -hmm. uh, about what she's allowing her sons to experience as a result of their actions Mm -hmm. um i there's also something i wanted to bring up um because harry mentions uh that He's never been in a wizarding house before. And uh, did anyone think the clock on the wall? I know they show it. It's, yep. it's pretty good in, in the movie. Um, but They've the clock on the wall. a couple of weird clocks. Yeah, they do, they do have a couple of weird clocks. But the clock on the wall opposite him, it said, only had one hand and no numbers at all. Written around the edge were things like yeah. time to make tea, time to feed the chickens, and you're late. And that just started making <laughs> me think, you know, like, if That's a smart clock. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, okay, obviously it doesn't work like our clocks, but um, that there's... <laughs> no, but there, no, no, no. Tell us more. But, but no, what, I, what I'm saying is it has no numbers on it at all, and so I'm, I'm trying to think... Is it a clock? It, well, it's, it's, well, he says it's a clock. It's not a clock. But at the same time, it's like, do they... I mean, it's got your late on it. So there's some type of time keeping that's going on there, and... I'm just wondering, like, what would it be like in a world where there was no time 
I mean, as far as the way we perceive it, you know, like we are in our culture are so oriented um, around time and keeping that schedule. Um, and it's gotten worse and worse. You know, our iPhones, we're always looking to see what time it is. But I mean, they don't really see a clock. All that they see is you're late. So I'm just trying to think what would it be like in the wizarding world to live in a time or to live in a place where time, I mean, it's, it's not irrelevant because obviously you're late is in there, but I mean, it's not like our world. I mean, it, it, like the way that they would look at our world is almost nonsensical, or at least we would look at their world as nonsensical. Well, I do wonder if this is like a wizard thing or if this is a Weasley thing. I think every watch that we see, apart from perhaps Harry's during the Triwizard Tournament maybe, doesn't tell actual time. Like Daedalus Diggle's watch yells at him, you're late! And in book seven, and uh-huh. Dumbledore's watch has like moons and stars on it. Yeah. So everybody's Ooh. watch seems to be different. But if there is no time, how can you be late? Well, well there if, is time. There is time. If, but if your sense of time is governed by relationships mm-hmm. and commitments, because you're late means you have committed to something that you are supposed to be at, uh, yeah. rather than it's seven o'clock, do with that what you will. But then, like, during the Triwizard Tournament, Harry is almost late to the lake, and Dobby wakes him up and says, Harry, you're going to be late. You're supposed to be there at, like, half past nine or something, and it's ten till. So, like, he's looking at his watch, and then later he looks at his watch and realizes that it doesn't work anymore because he was in the lake. So, clearly, there is a concept of, like, being at a certain place Mm -hmm. at a certain time and being late for it. So, this seems more like a Weasley thing or an individual sort of thing. Right. Maybe it's like hooked up, you know, like kind of like our smartwatches are hooked to our phones or whatever. It's like you're seen, late for this appointment you right. had. So all the people that you listed are a little bit weird also. True. Daedalus Diggle is not the most normal of individuals, and Albus Dumbledore is truly bonkers. <laughs> a brilliant, brilliant, crazy man. So, yeah, I just, I think this may just be kind of a, a whimsical... It's very endearing to me because, like like Trevor said, it just points out that there are, there are certain things throughout the day that need to be done, and Mrs. Weasley's life is governed by her children and by her responsibilities in her household, mm-hmm. and less by, you know, like, these are the typical societal constraints that I have to abide by kind of thing. Well, that's, I get what you're saying, and yes, it's endearing, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around, you know our lives are so governed by time and keeping time and doing something with our time that it's almost, I I can't, it's hard to imagine, you know, what the Weasleys are doing or what the wizarding world is doing. Well, it's almost frustrating to to people that are governed by time. You know, what time is it? What time is it at your house? Mm -hmm. Well, we don't really know. Yeah. It's time to make tea. Yeah. It's time to make tea in a little bit. Before, I mean, standardized time, I mean, this was the way societies functioned, right? Yeah. I mean, you had, you look, you could look at the sun, maybe you had a communal way of keeping time, but the only way that that meant anything was the rhythms of life that you inhabited and the commitments that you made to other people. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that, you know, the sun is at this place in the sky, it, you know, means nothing except for the fact that this is when I need to be doing this in my own field or doing this in my own home or I have a commitment to this other member of the society that 
you know, I've I've given my word to, and we've agreed to meet and maybe do trade mm-hmm. or or speak, converse in a particular <laughs> time and place. Um, but even that, yes, it's dependent upon time, but it's not run by time. It's run by the commitments and the rhythms of life that inhabit it. Mm-hmm. I think, in many ways, we are a really unique culture and time place because of in time. Not well, and I, I do mean historically time, <laughs> um, because many of the things that we used to allow, like you said, the relationships and the the very communal architecture that would govern time, now time governs those mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, when you're talking about like how people used to, you know, look up at the sun and, you know, decided, you know, it made me think about when I was in school and learning Latin, people would talk about like the Roman day, you know, and how... Right. Right. And not for everybody, but for like a lot of of Romans, you know, you had your, you had things that you basically started doing from dawn right. because everybody basically got up at the same time at dawn, work for a certain amount of the day. Main meal of the day was at lunch. After lunch, going to a bathhouse and having like this dedicated health and social time for an hour, two hours plus every single day for pretty much all Roman citizens. Um, I mean, of course, except slaves. I mean, we're not talking about, we're talking about yeah. citizens here. Um, there were, I mean, it, these, these social things, these institutions govern their days, mm-hmm. not a clock. Now, you could probably set a clock to a lot of that. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you know, the Roman hour was not like our hour. Yeah. Like it actually shifted. The Roman hour in the winter was like 45 minutes. And a Roman hour in the summer was like an hour and 15. Because generally speaking, an hour was one twelfth of mm-hmm. the daylight. Mm-hmm. So as the daylight shortened, <laughs> your hours shortened. Right. As the daylight got longer, your hours got longer. Yeah. What society could run that way today? When you even yeah. hear that in like <laughs> biblical testimony at about the third hour, at about the sixth hour. What does that mean? Well, about the third hour since the sun came up. Right. About the sixth hour since the sun came up. So you've even got these highly approximated ways of telling time, which are dependent not upon some accounting that that's almost superimposed on nature, but it's dependent upon nature itself. Mm-hmm. And right. so social relationships are organic in that way. Um, they are built upon the rhythms of nature and built into the rhythms of nature and not su- superimposed by numbers that are are made to contain nature. Right. Like, I... I... There are still many societies where a break in the middle of the day between one section of work and another section of work for an extended period of time is super common. It's really, it seems like, only in this very modern period that we've decided, no, 9 to 5 is an 8-hour block, and we, we've justified legally that 8 hours is like a sufficient working day for a lot of people, 
So we're just going to declare you can work from this time to that time, and you're done. Or, you know, 8 to 4, 8 to 4, thir- whatever it might be when you include sometimes a lunch hour. But a lunch hour is very rarely the, a social event, mm-hmm. like how a siesta would be. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I just, again, I wanted to bring it up just because it's it's a small little thing <laughs> that's in there, but... I think the implications of it are huge, you know, since it's something, I mean, time is something that we rarely really think of explicitly, yet, you know, it runs our lives every single day. And it obviously, or it doesn't seem to run the wizarding world the same way that it runs the muggle world. So while we're at the breakfast table, we also see Jenny. Mm-hmm. And this is a fun sort of setup for later. You guys are going to be married. I know. Is that weird? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so super she weird. Shows up, she shows up in her nightgown, squeals, and runs out again. And then Ron says, that's my sister Jenny. She's been talking about you all summer. And Fred says, she'll be wanting your autograph, Harry. <clears throat> And it's just it's just the, a couple of quick little vignettes with Jenny. She shows up and she runs away. Um, but it's just it's, it's so cute. Just the idea that all of this starts out with her having this like little crush on him, and being kind of terrified of him because he's so famous. And then they're about to have this harrowing experience together yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. at the end of this year. <clears throat> well, this chapter reminds me that Rowling never introduces a character that she doesn't intend to do something with. Mm -hmm. Mm. And maybe that's an overstatement, but both of the characters that are introduced to us in this chapter, Ginny and Gilderoy, Mm -hmm. pretty quickly develop in this this book um, into key uh, figures uh, that are making the plot advance forward. And... I, I it just it reminded me as I was reading, I, I was asking myself, I wonder what I thought the first time I heard, you know, or, or read about Jenny squealing and running away. Oh, that's just Ron's sister. Or Gilderoy Lockhart's photo on his book. Oh, that's just some wizard. Yeah. But it's not. It's it's very intentionally being placed here. Our attention's being drawn to it. Um and they will figure prominently in what follows. Well, Molly asks them, like you said, their punishment uh, is going to be because of their actions and forces them out into the garden. Of course, Harry doesn't have to go, but Harry is fascinated at this wizarding world, a uh, wizarding house that he's never seen, so wants to go with them. They have to denome the garden, which, of course, Harry kind of humorously says he thinks he knows what gnomes are and Ron says, "Oh, you mean those uh, fat little Santa Clauses with the fishing poles?" And he's like, "Those aren't gnomes, you know. Mm-hmm. These are gnomes, you know." And <laughs> and uh, there's these <laughs> the there's these little like potato looking creatures, I guess is how they <laughs> like angry, angry potatoes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they uh, there's get off me, and you know you know when I think about that, what differentiates a gnome between uh, uh, an a house elf, and, you know. I know they're different. Oh. They're different 
How oh dare my. you? I, 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 so many things. I, I, I re- again, I realize they, they, really know. That they are completely <laughs> different. But I'm saying this is a creature that is able to speak. Agreed. I, I'm I totally mean, and it's like, you. wait a minute here. Yeah. Like, does this you're, not, the, you're literally swinging them by their ankles. Oh, yeah. yeah. And They're chucking sentient. them. They, yeah, not only are they sentient, they speak English. Yeah. Like they, they're, they're what, conscious. Yeah. They are, they're, they're not human, but they are a, a species of intelligent creature that can communicate with humans in humans chosen language, mm-hmm. which again, I can't help but read that with all of the, the ethnic and racial undertones that right. we've been pointing out from from the very beginning from from episode one of this podcast we've been talking about how race ethnicity and wizarding species um you know sort of plays into and figures into this story in really key ways but often in ways that make the prejudice or oppression appear humorous right and therefore forgettable it did seem odd to me because the Weasleys, with the combination of lower class status, poverty, and redheadedness in the UK, immediately came to, drew to mind sort of perhaps an Irish heritage, even if their name is not, you know, mm-hmm. fitting in that way. It was originally they, O. Weasley. Oh, well, that would make a lot more sense. <laughs> but, um, I mean... In many ways, they fit a lot of the stereotypes about the Irish. And then, of course, they have potato-looking mm. creatures that are mm. rotten up their yard. And, mm. like, they need to toss them out. They need to sort of reject their potato things in order to, <laughs> like... Pretty far and to I, me, it's I like... I feel like if you had said something besides reject their potato things... <laughs> That is a that could have been a really profound point. Sorry, <laughs> they need to toss aside their vestiges of Irishness That's in order it. to appear <laughs> more Anglo and thus m- more in line with traditional conceptions of you know the the mm. the pure blood wizards they purport to be. Right, pure mm. pure what? Wizard. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously there are purebloods that are still also Irish. Um, although I believe the one really Irish guy that we meet later on is actually half Muggle, if I recall correctly. Um, Seamus. Seamus. Yeah, I believe that he talks at least in the movies about his mom being a wizard, witch yeah. and his dad being yeah. a Muggle. Yeah. Me dad. So, Me dad's a Muggle. Right. So, uh, so perhaps that is actually less common than. Maybe there aren't that many pure-blooded Irish wizards, but on the off chance that there's just a perfect distribution, um, it does seem like that's playing into those same humorous mm. racial stereotypes we were talking about before. Yeah, that's... Okay, so with the gnomes, maybe it's because they refer to them as potato-like creatures. I just always pictured them as plants, kind of like a mandrake, and maybe it's because they appear in the same book. But, like, mandrakes have human characteristics, and they look like little babies being pulled out of the ground. But then they also take on, like, some human sort of emotions, like, when they're maturing in order to stew them to wake up the people who have been... Mm-hmm. What is the word? 
petrified. Petrified. Thank you. Um, they, you know, they throw a raucous party in Greenhouse Three or something, and then like you know they're mature when they start moving into one another's pots. So it's like <laughs> there's something about them that's almost human-ish. So it's I don't know. For me, when I read this with the gnomes, they do they do say like gear off me, but even the the language with which she says it makes me think they're not like they're not like house elves in that they're creatures with like feelings maybe i don't i don't know i didn't picture so them you're as you're trying to tell me that gnomes do not have feelings yes. but okay um, but one of the ways that oppression often gets justified and this is in the real world as well as in the wizarding world is by d well, we call it dehumanizing mm-hmm. the one who is oppressed. Yeah, and so that we that would think on. that they don't. Well, they don't feel. Yeah, they they're don't, not like they us. They don't know. But you know, these creatures have ankles, and they're staggering around. You know, disoriented, and then they're crawling back. In. So they're not. They're not like root vegetables, like you yeah. know the mandrakes are. They aren't tubers no, or like you. But the mandrakes don't look like tubers, so but, I don't know. But the mandrakes so, don't you know, walk back in and inhabit their pots. They, they move into one another's. Yeah, but though. they're planted, right? So there's there's a there's a difference. They're Is there they're <laughs> they're rooted in a certain sense, whereas the gnomes are transient creatures who find a home. Well um, maybe. I don't know. I mean we're this saying is, that the live... gnomes have ankles, sure, but like the mandrakes have like and... little faces. I mean maybe it's just assigning them like human-like characteristics but they're not really i don't i'm not i'm I'm not you know saying let's dehumanize them because they're just little you know gnome creatures that don't have feelings i'm not i i'm just the way i because that's what we're hearing sure (laughs) okay the way way i read this (laughs) the way i read this is like that they're plants i mean that's how i know i mean they're inhabiting a garden that's just the way I picture it. So they it's interesting in to me to even be talk- like, like burrows, burrows that they dug, <laughs> just like the Weasleys. But it says they have bald heads exactly like a potato, not they are potatoes. <laughs> well, you know I know. Also, I'm I'm hereby announcing the inauguration of Spagu. That's what I was just the Society ready to for say. the Preservation of Gnomish Welfare. Yes, I was going to say that too. Yeah, I mean, there is yeah, a right. whole I, lot of dehumanizing well, with language going on. With the way you're talking, on. Crystal, I'm not sure you're going to make it well, on the list. Hold on. Let's, let's, I want to actually, I want to give some, some credence to one aspect of what Crystal, I think, is getting Thank at, you, which is Alex. the idea that just because a, a plant or an animal appears to have some human-like characteristics, that doesn't necessarily mean that that, hu- that creature <laughs> actually is human-like. And I think a great example of this is the Heikagani, which oh. is a kind of crab in Japan. It's a small species of crab that many people have believed the crab shell resembles a human face. Um, Do they speak Japanese? No, they don't. But they have... <laughs> and they're not on they, par they, with they look, the nose. They, no, I'm not saying on par with the nose, but with what she was saying about the mandrake root, like the idea that... Um, well, so there's a legend in Japan, if I recall this correctly, about the Hekigani, where they were somehow related it? to people. Oh, like no. Like some, there's some legend involving like a, you know, uh, 
a woman who was seduced by a water nymph or something similar. I, I forget how the story goes, <laughs> but the, the point was that the Japanese knew that there was this... And then the story about this kind of crab that was somehow, like, related to being human. And, you know, this has been in Japan for thousands of years, this story. And so there's this crab with a ludicrously prolific... Or this 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 crab is ludicrously prolific, but that has this human face on its shell. Like it really does. If you look at pictures of it, looking, it looks more and more like a human upsetting. the more you look at it. It's very right? scary. And the thing is, you know, you could just say, well, naturally, I mean, this looks like a face. But also, they, like, you could also see why a human being wouldn't just look at a crab that has a human face on it and be like, yeah, I want to eat this thing. Like, you're much more likely to be like, I'm going to toss this one back in the ocean and let this one live. And if you keep doing that, you're going to keep getting more and more crabs that have human faces on them, you know? it's It would just be essentially a kind of selective breeding. And if mandrake roots, you know, if the most potent mandrakes are already the ones that have the more human-like faces on them, then... You're, survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. You're <laughs> going to get more and more mandrakes with human more characteristics. Um, but when they start speaking English to you, I can yeah, see people, I, I, I can think see there's a line that gets crossed there. Yes. I'm just telling you how I read this the first time was like, it's it's a new theory to me that these are like human-esque sort of creatures because it's like when you ask about them being like similar to house elves, I'm like, what? Obviously, oh, yeah. I'm not saying they're house elves, but right. they, you know, they're weird looking creatures yeah. that are small and, you know... I think, I think as far as level of intelligence and magic, I, we don't have any evidence that gnomes yeah. have magic. Yeah. But again, but, that's not really the point. Yeah. It's right. Not. Personhood should not be dependent on whether right. or not you have magical ability. But, and, but it's it's on par with what Rowling has, has been doing throughout, which is introducing magical races or races that inhabit, inhabit the wizarding world that are diminished or oppressed or overlooked or manipulated by wizards without a second thought and that includes goblins house elves gnomes yeah probably even more even in the first book and three chapters that we've read well and not only this but the the boys i can't remember who exactly says it but they say that Mr. Weasley even takes it easy on them. So yeah, them, he's too soft. Yeah, them. he's too soft on them because he thinks they're funny. So them like swinging them around their heads like a lasso and chucking them, you know, out into the field, that is taking it easy on them. So I don't even want to know what the Malfoys are doing to guard. Oh God. Okay, so the thing is though, I don't know that J.K. Rowling would use the Weasleys to show to showcase this race that is supposedly being overlooked. Like, because the Weasleys are supposed to be, like, but, tolerant. But Ron, Ron with elves mm -hmm. yeah. is... Yeah, that's true. And yeah. Hagrid um, with other races, I, I don't remember. But I remember there being times in the stories where Hagrid talks about other races as if they are not on par with wizards, which is ironic because... Hagrid Hagrid's himself not entirely, is not entirely yeah. wizard. Human. Uh, well, yes. Right. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, but to me, it it's not that it's a blight on the Weasleys so much as it's a testimony to the fact that it is totally universal mm -hmm. in the wizarding world. And because it comes from the Weasleys, we don't question it. Right. 
Um, and and we've talked before in previous episodes about how Rowling will sort of smuggle in nuggets that she wants us to latch on to through characters that we trust. Mm-hmm. And so we don't question those things. Well, if that's the case, in the past we've sort of made connections between like house elves sort of being representative of maybe like the slave trade and even the goblins being maybe representative of like the Jewish community. So do we have an idea of what she might be trying to draw on here? They are throwing them over the wall. So are you I, I don't think I don't think she's pointing out Berlin. Hispanic. I think she's thinking about Irish people. Because the connection to potato, but also also I think um, because of the connection between like the borough and like I mean generally speaking, there's a long history of English colonization of Ireland. I mean that's kind of the whole conflict mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland right now. Um, Many of the Irish, and I think this is language explicitly used by the IRA, they refer to the British as colonizers. Um, and if we think that the Weasleys are those that have inhabited this hmm. place, that have been perhaps inhabited by other people, perhaps by these gnomes before they moved in there, um, then it would still kind of fit along that same storyline of... Well little people that like potatoes yeah i don't know it's a stereotype for sure but i mean also you've got sort of this disoriented wobbling in their walking oh that's a great point as they make their way back Mm -hmm. into the space that you tried to kick them out of this sort of almost drunken um overtaking of space that was not for theirs Okay, I'm just going to say, we recognize we may be over-reading this. Oh, absolutely. But sure. when you've been reading these books for 20 years, and you're <laughs> really crazy. interrogating the particularly ethnic and cultural dynamics that Rowling very clearly is playing with, mm-hmm. and some of the tropes that she is very clearly depending on in order to um, connote her characters, it it almost justifies this exercise of of saying, is she playing on real-world stereotypes in order to depict these different magical races? Yeah. I I think, actually, also, the throwing them out of the garden is itself something that would connect to the the sort of history of Irish Anglo-colonialism because of the way in which the Irish diaspora is pushed out through things like the use of transportation as a punishment where like the many Irish were literally as a punishment put on a boat and sent to some other part of the empire Mm -hmm. just to get them out, Mm -hmm. just to get them away from wherever they were. Um, usually in Ireland, but some, I mean, this punishment was used in other parts of the United Kingdom as well. And then sent to the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, wherever, wherever was away from, you know, Scepter Dial, mm. Albion. My only question then is, 
Like, it, it seems a silly question, but are we giving rolling too much credit too early on? I hesitate to ask that because every time I ask it, I feel like the answer is no. She's very clearly doing what no other... I mean, at, still at this point, children's lit author has ever done. Mm -hmm. But if we're honest, Chamber of Secrets... I mean, I think I read it when I was in the sixth grade. You know, these books were... I mean, even still, we didn't know that it was going to be a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. She didn't know that she was going to be literally writing for the entire world. Was, was she working into her young children's literature these sorts of sophisticated racial dynamics or is it that all of these details are here and it sort of works out in certain ways or was she just depending on the stereotypes to make the characters recognizable for her audience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it ends and it ends up working with the theme later on that she's trying to develop well, I mean, this book sort of revolves around a lot of prejudice against Muggleborns, so I think it's not a stretch to think that yeah. she's pointing to different stereotypes and racial issues that we have experienced throughout history. I mean, the whole the the monster in the Chamber of Secrets is targeting a specific type of person, mm -hmm. so I don't think it's a stretch. I mean, maybe we are reading a lot into it. Maybe things she didn't even intend, mm -hmm. but. They all fit with what mm. she's trying to achieve, I mm -hmm. think. I happen to fall into, especially with this Garden Gnome uh, instance, I, I think we are reading a little bit too far into it. I think Consider she, your invitation to Spigu revoked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I did, no, I, I'll have to say, when I brought this question up, I did think it is kind of weird that we have something that can actually speak to you when you're, like, chucking it out. But, I mean... I, as far as, you know, like, this is symbolic of the Irish being, you know, jettisoned from the UK. <laughs> I, I, I'm still not sure I'd go that far. I mean, but like, it fits. It, 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 I mean, it's possible. I think we're, we're making it fit. Yeah. And the, it, it, it it's, hinging it's, on, it's hinging like on the description the of the potato, I, I think. And again, may, maybe she did put, put that in there. Um, I think maybe she did, but I, I, don't, I don't. I'm not buying that she went this far into yeah. it. Yeah, and I think I I could be wrong here, so keep that in mind. But I think that she had already structured all seven books mm -hmm. when she was writing this, yeah. so she knew where she was going. Because I've read before, for definite, I'm not I'm not unclear on this. I have read before that she knew how the books were going to end right. as she was writing book right. one. So she knew she had at least structured these books and knew that these racial themes were yeah. going to be well, huge. And we see that even in chapter one. We've in our in our inaugural episode we talked about the details in chapter one of book one that only make sense mm -hmm. um in light of I mean multiple books down the line. Right. Um so yeah Again, that's why I say I hesitate to ask, was she doing it on purpose? Um, 
because I, I do think, and even hearing you talk about that, is reminding me that these themes are very much in the forefront of her mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the Ministry of Magic becomes Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. That's, that is oh, what yeah. it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she's hinting all along the way at the racial animus that is boiling underneath the surface of wizarding society. But, I mean, I, th I think I've confessed this to you all before. I mean, it took me many books in before I realized, oh my gosh, that is what this series is about. Yeah. This series is about pure blood versus muggle-borns. Mm -hmm. I always thought, okay, that's just a sub-theme that some of these jerks are, you know, really concerned with. And But the fun, it's, it's all about magic, you know, and, you know, well, all the all the different villains that are showing up and they're all they're all Voldemort and but no it's it's united by very much racial themes that are going along the contours of Nazi Germany um, and if that was in her mind then I don't think we can discount maybe all of the details we're pressing are a stretch but the fact that gnomes are being abused mm -hmm. I, I don't I mean it it totally fits with what she's doing yeah Unless she intended them just to be root vegetables. <laughs> yeah. In which case, I think it was a strategic error to allow them to speak. Yeah. It I think was what? I think it was a strategic error then for oh. her to allow them to speak. Speaking things, I think, in, like, necessarily take on personhood. I don't think that's... I mean, if you think about it, though, even if they didn't speak, like... If we were picturing an animal here, like a dog, would this be acceptable? No, never. No. But when I read mm. this the first time, I did not have a problem with this scene. And maybe that says something about my own inherent bias that I'm mm. unsure of. I don't think so. But I thought that these were vegetables that just happened to make little noises that sounded like get off of And, me. and walk around. And... <sighs> yes. Okay. The twins also teach them swear words at some point. Yeah. So they oh. can learn. So maybe they're more like parrots. Oh my parrots. gosh. Yeah, they feel more like parrots intelligence-wise. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If they mm. can respond and say things like, get off of me, and then can be taught swear words, I think... Yeah, well, you, you can teach a parrot words. Yes, but a, a parrot... Parrot's parrot. not... Yeah, it's not deploying language for its own purposes. Right. True. It's not reactionary in its language. Like, right. It's, grab it, this, get off of me. This sounds much more like... Defense a child, a, ti a child mm. or a yeah. toddler might say, get off of me. Or repeat a word it may not totally understand, but it also knows it can get something by saying certain words. Yeah. I like, think you guys are forgetting about the movie Polly, where the, the talking parrot is in there. And I think you're I am forgetting, forgetting that. about the Nick Jr. series, David the Gnome. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Wow. This is too deep. All right, we need to wrap this stuff up. We're uh, we're going a little long here. That sounds good. Yeah, let's let's get to the very end where uh, we see Ron's room. Ron, or he takes Harry up to Ron's room, and it's covered in from uh, every every Trudley point. croutons. Yeah, in uh, in orange. A what? Trudley cannon. Did you yes. say croutons? One of the two. <laughs> Definitely not croutons. <laughs> it's cannons for sure. Uh, so it's a very orange room, which is fun because Ron's a very orange person. Yeah. 
and yeah. and he also is uh, a comic book reader, which is fun. I like the idea of a wizarding comic yeah. that features muggles. Which yeah, is awesome. the Adventures of Martin Miggs, the Mad Muggle, with lots of alliteration. Just the thing I, I think I like most about this scene is um, Harry the, the entire time since they've arrived at the burrow keeps saying remarks like it, it's a bit small or it's it's Harry you know, doesn't it, say it, it, oh, I'm sorry I'm Ron sorry Ron I'm, I'm yeah. sorry I misspoke Ron keeps saying things like oh it's a bit small or it's not much mm-hmm. but then Ron or sorry then Harry is quick to say oh this is you know, the, the greatest thing I've ever seen. This is yeah. the best house I've ever seen. And, I mean, this is how the, the this chapter ends. With, this is Harry's new home away from home. And uh, Ron says, I mean, this is his room, and says, you know, it's a bit small. Uh, and he, he explains that the ghoul is in the attic, and he's always banging on the pipes and groaning. And then, you know, Harry, with a big grin, says, this is the best house I have ever been in. This line, though, that Ron says, he says, it's it's a bit small, not like that room you had with the muggles, is so revealing of Ron's heart, though, because he rescued Harry from a room, yeah, it was bigger than his own, but it had bars on the window. Yeah, and it was locked from the outside. Right. And all Ron can see is, it's bigger and better than what I have. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. something, Ron is so jealous mm. of this. It's mm-hmm. a theme, and Ron's, I mean, up until... Book seven, when he destroys the Horcrux, it's like mm-hmm. Ron cannot yeah. get, he cannot get over mm-hmm. that Harry has more than him. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and it's so beautiful that in this moment, Harry says, this is the best house I've ever been in. But it's not even that Harry has more than him, right? Because Harry doesn't have more than right. him. No. Yeah. And even with the Horcrux, you know, he sees... Harry and Hermione. And that's not a thing. And it's not a thing. Yeah. It's never been a Ron thing. Ron and Hermione yeah. are a thing. But mm-hmm. he can't see what he has for his fear of what Harry might have that is more than him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, I think that's that's a really great observation. But is it also, I mean, playing into that, and I know it's not necessarily pointed out here, but he is also the youngest brother out of the mm-hmm. mall, you know, he's 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 mm-hmm. the baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than Jenny, um, you know, he's he's the youngest brother, so he feels like he has to uh, compete with his brothers who are prefects and doing mm-hmm. all kinds of great things yeah. in, in the wizarding world, and I think that also plays into it. How do you think he got this impression? You know, Ron? I mean, yeah, I mean, just I'm thinking of what that Harry's better than him. No, that that what he has is very little. Like it does seem like. I mean, we know we're told all the time that the Weasleys are very poor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yet, clearly they don't want for food. Mm-hmm. Clearly they don't want for medical care, as we've seen later on. Clearly they don't... They, they go to the same extraordinarily prestigious school. I mean, like, what is... What, where did he get these experiences where he, I don't know, had a sleepover with the Malfoys when he was five yeah. and, like, visited Malfoy Manor and just saw the opulence of the great houses, you know? I mean, well, I mean, where do we imagine he got this? Now, maybe, maybe it was in the comic books. Maybe it was in other literature that he saw, I don't know, like, the mm, wizard version of People magazine and, like, 
or home better homes and gardens, better 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 mansions and castles, um, or something where you can like <laughs> see just how much better the other half lives. But it just doesn't seem like the the Weasleys are like that. Like they don't seem like they're the kind of family that really envies having what the what the richer families do. So why does Ron? Well, I was gonna say I think you're you're wrong in that. I mean, they they do kind of envy, or at least we see it in a couple instances. One is is Ron, you know, like he's very insecure. Um, another is Percy, which we haven't mm. really gotten into, but mm. he's embarrassed of where he comes from as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in a way that I think is even deeper than Ron's, and he completely acts on it, trying to separate himself from the family and so i I think there is that sense uh that you know they they realize maybe that they're not as ambitious and you know i think uh, arthur and molly are okay with it but you know the kids they they go to school and they're mixing and mingling with a lot of other witches and wizards and uh they see that we we don't necessarily have as much you know and it's it's one of those feelings, I think, that is, is natural, especially to kids. And especially but, teenage kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Perhaps I guess I just don't have a good sense of what it is they don't have, like, really, yeah. compared to well, these other kids. Well, Ron has a lot of hand-me-downs. Yeah. So, like, that's one thing. With these magical objects, they can't afford new or good yeah, I mean, items. Mm-hmm. So, like, he ends up having that wand that's spellotaped for a long time. It was an old wand. Mm, He's got the, this dirty gray rat that was a hand-me-down the also. dress robes to the Yule Bowl. Yeah, his dress robes. All of these different things we see him in that he's terribly embarrassed to be around his classmates having, but his parents can't afford to get him something better And he functional. did just spend the entire first year at Hogwarts being tortured by Malfoy about not having money. Yeah, mm-hmm. because yeah. their fathers know each other, and his father is already picked on by Lucius. Mm. But... Arthur knows who he is and and what he is, and he doesn't let it get to him. Ron hasn't really found mm-hmm. himself yet. Mm-hmm. We need a I kid think. getting, I mean, getting yeah, ready to go through kid. puberty. Yeah. And, I mean, like, just wants to fit in. And, and yeah. now his best friend is the most famous person in the wizarding world. Mm. And so he, throughout the entire series, we're going to see these feelings of inadequacy from Ron because he cannot ever live up to Harry Potter type. Mm-hmm. And he's always you know, going to be the guy behind Harry. Psychic. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like Ron's thing that he craves is not necessarily money. It's recognition. Mm-hmm. And money, I think, is what he believes is the vessel to get him that recognition. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just stems from having six older brothers or five older brothers. Yeah, five older brothers. Yeah. All of whom have done something that you know people either really like them because they're funny or they're off you know with dragons or breaking curses for gringotts whatever it is they've all got this thing and then i think in book seven when he has been you know tortured sort of by the horcrux that he's wearing the locket um he's uh, voldemort's tormenting him and he says something like you know least loved by the mother who craved a daughter Mm -hmm. so there's also this thing where he was like the last boy before they finally got what they wanted, which was the girl. Mm. And so it's like there's this whole middle child syndrome thing, too. And he feels That's very weird. unloved. And then Harry well, that, comes in and sort of 
also takes some of his mother's affection. Mm-hmm. So while Harry's his best friend, he has to share that affection. And there are just so many things there yeah. wrapped up in it. And so money just seems to be the thing he believes will actually get him what he really wants, mm-hmm. which is recognition. When we know that, because the mirror of error said, right. showed it to us. Yeah. yeah. What And if I'm not mistaken, it was Ron shaking hands, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. With Dumbledore winning the House Cup. Well, Something like, he was a prefect. No, he was a prefect. He's, he's, a prefect. He's, pre, he's head boy and Quidditch captain. Yeah. Yeah. And shaking and it's, hands it's with Harry Dumbledore. shaking hands with Dumbledore. I won the House Cup. That okay. he lies about in the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the chamber. Okay. At the end well, of book one. But even 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 still, it's in the Mirror of Error set, it's recognition. It's... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's he has succeeded. He he's, has become he something. He has chosen. Mm-hmm. He's... He's become... He has become something. Mm-hmm. Um... Again, it, we're we're given insight into his character so early on. Mm-hmm. It's easy to dismiss it, mm-hmm. you know, book, because book one is so frivolous and, you know, lighthearted mm-hmm. and whimsical and childish. But it, you know, so much is revealed about who he is. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's brought us to page forty-one of my copy, which is the last page of this chapter. The next chapter, chapter four, will be at Flourish and Blots, uh, where we will meet some new characters and see some more plot points developing. Until then, you can reach us, dear listeners, at hpvcfanmail at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at hpbcpodcast. And until next time, Mischief Managed. Managed.